You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. You can go and turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 38. On Wednesday nights, we've been working our way through the book of Ezekiel. And we've got some really fascinating stuff to talk about tonight. Uh, I hope you brought your thinking cap because we got a lot of thinking to do tonight to think about some of the big picture items that are being discussed. And this hopefully will whet your uh, appetite for further study because a lot of the questions that are going to be raised in your mind, I'm not going to have time to answer them tonight. All right, And I'm going to say a lot of things, you're going to be like, wait a minute, what about? And I'm not going to answer it because I don't have time to answer it tonight. We're going to look at this from a big picture perspective. And uh, again, maybe this will, will uh, encourage you to maybe dig in a little bit more into some of these uh, different issues. But first, let me pray for us, and uh, then we'll, we'll start our study of Ezekiel, the final battle. Father, we're grateful for this time together, grateful for this opportunity to gather and to study your word and to, uh, Lord, allow your word to speak into our lives. And God, I pray that you would do just that, that you would work in our midst today. Um, Lord, give us understanding, but... Uh, even more than that, give us understanding that leads to a perspective, that leads to, uh, Lord, a desire to please you um, and honor you with the way that we live our lives. And we'll thank you, Lord, for that grace. We love you tonight and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of my favorite movies is uh, the movie The Longest Day. John Wayne was in that movie. It's a movie about D-Day. Every year around D-Day, I try to watch Longest Day. And what I love about that movie is it does a good job of helping you to understand the scope of D-Day. I mean, how many people were involved, you know, land, sea, and air, and, and the massive undertaking uh, that D-Day was. And I always appreciate just the scope of the battle and the scope of all those that were uh, involved. And tonight we're going to study a battle That's, that scope goes beyond anything you and I can even fathom. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a last battle. It's an it's, it's a ultimate battle between good and evil. And I want to show you this uh, again from the book of Ezekiel. But before we get into that, I want to I just kind of remind you of the outline and the summary of this book. Uh, just kind of a quick, just real quick reminder of what the book of Ezekiel is about. Because of Israel's disobedience to God, God allowed the Babylonians to overthrow them and to take thousands of the Jews uh, into captivity, back to the land of Babylon. That time period is called the Babylonian Exile. It was a time period where thousands of Jews were uh, forcibly taken from their home, and they were longing to go back to their home. But even among the disobedient Jews, God allowed them to hear from him. He raised up a priest named Ezekiel, who served as a prophet who spoke messages from God to these uh, Jews who were in captivity. So that's where we see the, um, the, the, the book unfold, uh, starting there under the first part of the outline. The, the book begins in chapters 1 through 3 with the prophet's call. God calls Ezekiel, the priest, to speak these messages. The second part of the book is 
uh, a message of judgment for Jerusalem and Judah. He speaks to his people in their rebellion and disobedience and the judgment that comes as a result. The third part of the book, he has some messages for other nations surrounding the nations, uh, the nation of, of, uh, of Israel. And then in chapters 33 through 39, there's a message for the Jews after the fall of Jerusalem. The, the attacks of the Babylonians came in three major waves, and the final attack was the most devastating, 586 B.C. There were some Jews in captivity. They heard that Nebuchadnezzar attacked again and destroyed the walls and destroyed the temple. It was a devastating time for the Jews. But, and God has a message for them, kind of now what? Now that you've undergone this utter destruction, here's how you ought to live in response. That's what chapters 33 through 39 are about. So you'll notice that we're going to finish part four of the outline tonight because we're going to study uh, chapter 38 and chapter 39. And then chapter, uh, chapters 40 through 48, there's a vision of restoration. It talks about this mysterious temple. We'll talk about what that temple is and, and uh, what it entails. But here's a summary of the book of Ezekiel. From exile in Babylon, Ezekiel's stunning visions and startling symbolic acts were prophecies for the Israelites to teach God's sovereign plan over them in the history of his kingdom so that they shall know that I am the Lord. So God speaking through Ezekiel to remind his people, I'm the Lord, I'm the one true God, you need to turn to me even as you experience the results of your rebellion or the consequences of your rebellion. Now last time we were together talking about Ezekiel, we studied my favorite passage in Ezekiel, the Valley of the Dry Bones, which, which was God's way of telling the Jews, he was going to raise them up as a nation and return them to their homeland. But that, um, that brought about some questions the Jews undoubtedly had. And, and Lamar Cooper kind of, kind of phrases these questions. He, he writes, If Israel was to be restored permanently to the land, what about future enemies? What about the opposition of the premier enemy of God's people in every age, the adversary Satan? If God's people are to enjoy permanent residence, permanent blessing, and permanent peace in the restoration, what will be done about the struggle between good and evil, God and Satan? And that's what chapters 38 and 39 answer. They answer some of those questions. In other words, God was going to bring the Jews back uh, to the promised land. He was going to restore them as a nation. But there was still some conflict coming for them. But they needed to understand that when it's all said and done... God wins. And that's what these two chapters are about. And, and these two chapters center around a battle, a large battle, a great battle, a final battle. And I want to discuss this battle under uh, five different headings. So if you look there in your notes, first of all, in chapter 38, we see a great army. A great army. This is there in chapter 38, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws. I will bring you out in all your, look at what it says there, army, horses, horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them with buckler and shield, wielding swords, Persia, Cush, and Put are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all his hordes, Beth Togarmah from the uttermost parts of the north with all his hordes. Many peoples are with you. So God has this message for Gog and 
uh, Magog. Now, I want to just kind of walk you through this passage to help you to understand what this great army is all about. First of all, a ruler will unite a large coalition. That's what these verses tell us. A ruler will unite a large coalition. The ruler's name is Gog, G-O-G. Anybody in here name their kids Gog? Any Gogs in here? Uh, we, don't have, we don't have a Gog Humphreys in the family. Um, not, a, not a flattering name, but, but Gog is, the, is, the, is the, the ruler that God is speaking to. Because look what it says there in verse 1. Set your face, son of man, speaking of Ezekiel, toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince. So it calls him there the chief prince in verse 2. And again in verse 3, it calls Gog the chief prince. And so Gog is a ruler, a, a general or a king of sorts. Um, and he is the ruler of Magog. And Magog simply means the land of Gog. So if you're a great enough ruler, they could just name a land after you, right? So Gog is the ruler of the land of Gog. He's the ruler of Magog. And it says there that, that Gog is a ruler, a chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. So we're starting to kind of get some, some geographic hints. Who is this, who's this Gog? What area does he reign over? Where is he coming from? What is the land of Magog? And, and as we look, we begin to kind of get some inkling as to what this is all about. It mentions there in verse 2 that he's the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. says it again in verse 3. Well, we know that Meshech and Tubal were located in Eastern Asia Minor. Eastern Asia Minor. Um, so this would suggest an area that Gog uh, rules over uh, that in today's time we would call Central Asia. That's the kind of the part of the world that we refer to in today's time. And so this would probably include parts of Iran, uh, Turkey, the southern provinces of Russia, uh, the nations with Stan in their name, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, uh, the, the, you know, these different nations with Stan. That, that's kind of this area that's being referred to when it says that, that Gog is the chief prince of Meshach and uh, Tubal. And so that gives us just a little bit of information about Gog and Magog. Now, I want to just give you some information on the front end. I believe this is talking about a future battle, all right? So, Gog is a name given to a future ruler who will have rule or influence over kind of what I believe is the Central Asian part of the world, you know, the, that, that, the areas that I just named. And there's a little bit of mystery here, and that's on, in, on, on purpose. Uh, the ESV Study Bible says, Gog and Magog remain enigmatic or mysterious, perhaps because the intention of the prophecy is simply to point to a yet unknown future leader of a great attack against God's people, one whose identity will not be known until the prophecy is fulfilled. Now here's what people like to do. They like to say, well, I want to know who Gog is, and I'm going to, I'm going to figure out who Gog is. And so you can watch prophecy experts and read prophecy books, and they will tell you with great precision, precision that Gog is such and such a person that rules such and such a place. When you hear that, you ought to say, um, thanks for your thoughts, but we'll wait and see how it all turns out. All right. Anyone that speaks on this issue with great specificity um, is, is really speaking with a specificity that the Bible does not 
grant. Does that make sense? And it's interesting to think through. It's interesting to, to make, our, um, to make our, our educated guesses. It's interesting to, to, you know, to, to think it may be this place or this person. But we've got to understand the Bible doesn't tell us. It, it remains a little bit mysterious here. But it's giving us the broad brushstrokes of, of a great battle that is coming. And when it comes, there will be a ruler, the Bible calls Gog, who has influence over this Central Asian part of the world that will be leading the battle. Everybody got that? All right, now, he's going to build a large coalition. Because look what it says there in verse 5. It says, Persia, Cush, and Put are with them, all of them with shield and Helmet, Gomer, all his hordes. Beth, Togarmah, with the uttermost parts of the north, with all his hordes. Many peoples are with you. So whoever Gog is, Central Asian person of influence, all right, could be, you know, the area we call Russia or, you know, but whatever, they're, they're a person of influence is going to build a large coalition for this battle. And again, we get some geographical hints here. Uh, he mentions Persia, that's Iran, modern-day Iran. He mentions Kush, that's modern-day Ethiopia. He mentions Put, that's modern-day Libya, so we're talking about North Africa now. He mentions Gomer, that's Armenia. He mentions Togarma, which is also <coughs> excuse me, Armenia. And so he's mentioning these different places that will be uh, in an alliance led by this ruler from a Central Asian area who will lead this great battle against God's people. And this coalition that's in your notes, this coalition will be arrayed against God's people through scheming and attack. So look what it says there in verse 10. Thus says the Lord God, on that day thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil scheme and say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will fall upon the quiet people who dwell securely, all of them dwelling without walls, having no bars or gates to seize, spoil, and carry off plunder to turn your hand against the waste places that are now inhabited and the people who were gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods who dwell at the center of the earth. Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish and all its leaders will say to you, have you come to see spoil? Have you assembled all your hosts to carry off plunder, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to seize great spoil? Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, thus says the Lord God, on that day when my people Israel are dwelling securely... Will you not know it? You will come from your place out of the uttermost parts of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great host, a mighty army. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. So very clear that Gog and his coalition will come out of the north, north of what we would call modern-day Israel, and lead a great battle against the people of God, specifically the Israelites. Now again... I believe this is all future tense. I'll show you this in a minute, why I believe this is future tense. So this tells us, if this is future tense, it tells us something about Israel, right? It tells us that they, the, the Jews, will play a major time, a major role in the end times, in the unfolding events of the end times. Uh, the Jews will, will be the centerpiece of all that is happening. And you look at the Bible, you look at Romans 11 and other passages, the, the Bible indicates there's going to be a great in-gathering of Jews who believe the gospel and follow Christ. Uh, there's going to be a, a great a strengthening of the Jews in uh, Jerusalem, in their area. But uh, this passage tells us there's going to be a great battle that is brought against the Jewish people. And again, I believe the battle is future tense from now. So a great army. All right, everybody got that? 
We got Gog, we got Magog, we got a coalition coming from the north to attack the Jews. Everybody got that? All right, now I know you got lots of questions, so let's just keep going. Second, there's a great paradox, and we see this paradox throughout the scripture. Look what it says in verse 17. Thus says the Lord God, Are you he of whom I spoke in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who in those days prophesied for years that I would bring you against them? But on that day, the day that Gog shall come against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, my wrath will be roused in my anger. For in my jealousy, in my blazing wrath, I declare on that day there will be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the ground, all the people who are on the face of the earth shall quake at my presence. So what is God saying here? God's saying, hey, listen, Gog, when you start attacking, remember, I, I told you this was going to happen. I prophesied this. This is not catching me by the surprise. I sent my prophets, my mouthpieces to tell my people a great battle will happen one day led by a Gog figure. All right? So he's saying, I, I'm, I'm overall, I'm sovereign over human history. I knew this was coming. Your evil is not catching me by surprise. In fact, I'm going to use it ultimately to show my power and my glory. If you look there in your notes, God in his sovereignty even uses the evil of ungodly nations to accomplish his purposes. God raised Gog up. God raised Gog up. And God will destroy Gog and Magog. That's what this passage is saying. And so there's a paradox here that God's saying, I'm allowing you to have power. I'm allowing you to have might. I'm allowing you to, to come as a, a destroyer. But you need to understand, I'm God. And I will have the final say. So this is just kind of a quick little reminder from this passage that God rules over human history. We don't have to wring our hands when we see evil out there. We know that God is ultimately calling the shots. And so we see there this great paradox. But third, there is a great battle. There is a great battle that ensues, starting in verse 19. And it says there, fast forward down to uh, verse 21. I will summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. With pestilence and bloodshed I will enter into judgment with him. I will rain upon him and his hordes. Many peoples who are with him, torrential rains and hailstones, fire and sulfur. So I will show my greatness and my holiness, make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. And so it's almost like God saying, it's almost comical, but it's almost like God saying here, hey, Gog, I got some good news and bad news for you. The good news is you're going to be, you know, king of the mountain. You're going to be this really mighty, important person, and you're going to be influential. You're going to gather all these other nations. You're going to come marching into town, and you're going to be strong and fierce, and people are going to cower before you. That's the good news. Here's the bad news, Gog. I'm going to fight you. I'm going to take care of you. So it's not going to end well. That's what God is, is saying. There's going to be a great battle. I'm going to fight for my people, and I will overthrow you. More about that in just a moment. But the obvious question arises. What battle is he talking about here? What battle? When is this battle, this major battle between Gog and a coalition of evil nations against the, the Jews, fought by God himself, when does this happen? When, when does this take place? Place. So I've given you three views. Okay, there are more than three views because 
there are different views of the millennium in the Bible, and I've given you the three views that line up with my view of the millennium of the Bible. All right. So again, for what it's worth, I believe the, the millennium is a literal 1,000-year period of history that takes place in the unfolding end-time scenario. And so I believe that, that these three views line up with that view of the millennium. There's also other views that the millennium is, is, uh, is, is not a literal time period, amillennialism and postmillennialism, things like that. But I don't hold to that. I hold to, to, to um, historic premillennialism. And so I believe um, that, that there really is a 1,000-year period of history in which Christ reigns upon the earth before the final um, assigning of heaven and hell. So keeping that in mind, what, when does this battle take place when it comes to the end times? Well, here's one view. One view is that this battle will occur at the end of tribulation and is equated with the battle of Revelation 19, 11 through 21. So, so some people say this, the, the battle that's being talked about here in, in Ezekiel 38 and 39 is the same battle that's described in Revelation chapter 19, 11 through 21. You may have heard of that battle it's called the Battle of Armageddon. Anybody, raise your hand if you heard the Battle of Armageddon. Final end times, uh, monumental battle, all right, between a coalition raised up against God's people and God uh, coming to fight for his people. So that certainly adds up. And, and to, to uh, give credence to that view, look in Ezekiel 39, verse 4. Ezekiel 39, verse 4. Speaking of his defeat of Gog and Magog, you shall fall in the mountains of Israel, you and all your hordes and the peoples who are with you. I will give you to, watch this, I will give you to birds of prey of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. You shall fall in the open field, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. And, and then fast forward down to verse 17 of this same chapter. Verse 17. As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every sort, to all the beasts of the field, assemble and come, gather from all around to the sacrificial feast, that I'm preparing for you a great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel. You shall eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth. What's God saying? The overthrow of this coalition raised up against God and his people will be so devastating that, that the, the, the carrion birds, the, the birds that eat dead things, will gorge themselves on human flesh. Very, a, a pretty striking statement and, and, uh, and hard to, to kind of stomach, but it's an important statement that, that God will completely defeat his enemies. Now, remember, birds gorging themselves on human flesh. Keep that thought and turn to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. Verse 17. I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds. Sound familiar? They fly directly overhead. Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, flesh of horses and their riders, of the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Does that sound familiar? There's a direct connection there between this address to the birds. Come and feast on all of the dead that died in this 
battle. So, again, this view says that Ezekiel 38 and 39 are talking about the battle of Armageddon that takes place at the end of the tribulation period uh, that most would say happens right before the second coming of Christ. Uh, In fact, uh, they believe that Christ comes to give ultimate victory. His second coming will give ultimate victory uh, in uh, that battle of Armageddon. So that's one view. Another view, or second view, is that this battle will occur, Ezekiel 38 and 39, this battle will occur at the end of the millennium and should be equated with Revelation chapter 20. So there's another big battle that dif- different from the battle of Armageddon found in Revelation chapter 20. It's a battle that happens after the millennial reign of Christ. So let's just kind of walk through the timeline real quick. The Bible speaks of a tribulation period, second coming of Christ. After the second coming, there will be a thousand, I believe, a thousand year reign of Jesus on this earth where he reigns with perfect justice and wisdom. At the end of the thousand years, Satan, who has been bound, will be re- released. He'll raise up a coalition that will bring another great horde of warriors against God and his people. And there'll be another great battle, and God will overthrow them in that battle. So this is the battle at the end of the millennium, okay? Found in Revelation chapter 20, different than the the, the battle found in Revelation chapter 19. So some scholars say, well, Ezekiel 38 and 39 are talking about that battle. The battle at the end of the millennial reign of Christ when Satan is freed for a time. Now, there is some compelling evidence that that is the case. For example, turn to Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. And look who it names. Who? Gog and Magog to gather them for battle. So, in support of this view, it does use the exact same names. Gog and Magog. Which seems to tie it in to Revelation, or sorry, Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. So, which, which battle is it? All right, Is it, the, the, is it the, the Armageddon at the end of the tribulation? Is it this battle at the end of the millennial reign of Christ? Which battle is Ezekiel referring to? And both of them have some good evidence, right? Armageddon talks about the birds gorging themselves. Uh, the millennial battle, the end of the millennial battle, speaks of Gog and Magog again. Mentions them by name. So which battle is it? Well, there's a third view. And I actually came across this view just recently, and I thought, hmm, I kind of like it. And here's the third view, all right? Another view combines the aforementioned views and considers that the battle will occur at the end of the tribulation. It will then pause for 1,000 years, after which it will resume and be concluded as the battle of Revelation 27 and 8. And so this view says that... Ezekiel 38 and 39 are referring to both battles. There's gonna, it's it's going to basically start at the end of the tribulation. There will be a long pause. And then Satan will try to do his thing at the end of the millennial reign. And God will finish the battle once and for all. And I think that's an interesting view. I think there is biblical credence to that view. It's almost like I was talking to Amanda, our church clerk, right before. And, and uh, the church minutes... Uh, or she's organized them so well, but it's been a little crazy the past couple months because if you remember, 
um, we left church conference open so that we could walk through the entire budget process, the, the Q&A and, and uh, you know, the, the, the presentation and the vote. And after we voted, then we closed church conference. So, so you know, she has notes going back all the way to October because we left church conference open. So, you know, it's just kind of kind of uh, kind of crazy. In a manner of speaking, what this view says is the battle started in the in the tribulation and God left it open. <laughs> and Jesus came and ruled for a thousand years, released Satan. You say, why did he release Satan? No one in this room knows. If someone says they know, they don't know. The Bible didn't tell us. He releases Satan for his own purposes. And Satan wreaks havoc. He gathers another great army and coalition. And God overthrows him. And then the battle is completely over. Does that make sense? So that's a third view as to what battle Ezekiel 38 and 39 are talking about. But here's the, here's the, the takeaway. You don't want to miss this. Regardless of which view you hold. This showdown between coalition of, of ungodly nations and God and his people will conclusively show God's power, majesty, and holiness. Again, if you look back in uh, Ezekiel 38, look what it says in verse 23. Ezekiel 38, verse 23. I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations and they will know that I am the Lord. In other words, God's saying, I'm going to move with such power, such devastating power against this great army that everyone will see and know that I am the one true God. That's the takeaway. So however it all folds, unfolds in the, you know, the, the end times and you know, Armageddon and tribulation and millennial reign and final battle and all, however it unfolds that's that God's going to be over all that but when it does unfold and when the dust settles everyone will say God is God God is God and that's the result of his defeat in this or his overthrow in this battle number four very quickly there's a great burial ground Ezekiel 39, 1 through 4, and 9 through 20, which just shows the devastation that this great army will undergo. Read those passages on your own time, but it talks about the, the implements will be stacked up and, and it will take years to, to use them as fuel because there will be so many uh, implements of war that the dead leave behind. A great burial ground, again, showing God's power over this um, army. Uh, just kind of anecdotally here, or not anecdotally, but just parenthetically here. Uh, I've been to Israel, and when you look at the book of Revelation and, and some other passages, it, it seems that uh, this great battle take place in a place called the Valley of Jezreel, and near Megiddo, which we, that's where we get Armageddon from. And I've been to Megiddo, and I have, I have seen that valley, and it's a really, really large valley. And when you're looking at that valley, you could see how a, a massive army could form up there and how that could be the scene of a major, major battle. It's really interesting. It's this, it's this really large... Who's been there? Who's been to the Valley of Jezreel? It's this really large valley, and there's, it's really undeveloped. There's not much, there's not much there. It's just this, this, this kind of barren, desolate valley, which seems like the perfect setting for a final, ultimate conflict between God and the ungodly nations of this world. So for what it's worth, 
I've seen that spot, and it certainly seems like it could be a spot where this could happen, a great burial ground. But number five, and we'll be done, there's, there's great mercy, great mercy. Look in chapter 39 uh, and, and skip down to verse 21. God says, I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed, and my hand that I have laid on them. The house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. The nations shall know the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity, because they dealt so treacherously with me that I hid my face from them and gave them into the hand of their adversaries, and they all fell by the sword. I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their transgression and hid my face from them, speaking of, of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. And I will be jealous for my holy name. They shall forget their shame and all the treachery they have practiced against me when they dwell securely in their land with none to make them afraid. Look in verse 28. Then they shall know that I am the Lord their God because I sent them into exile among the nations. Then I assembled them into their own land. I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore. I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. So here's what he's saying. When this final battle happens and God shows his power and overthrows his enemies, God's people will see and rejoice in God's victory. God's people will see and rejoice in God's victory. And notice here, the Jews are mentioned, verses 25 through 29, it speaks of the Jews... Uh, uh, this large ingathering of Jews that worship the one true God and worship the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He'll pour out a spirit upon them. But it also mentions Gentiles in verse 21. He says, I will set my glory among the nations. The nations shall see. So if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. And the good news is this, that if you know Jesus, you belong to him, Jew or Gentile. You belong to God. And on that day, all who belong to God, we will marvel and rejoice that God won the final battle. That God won the final victory. We'll see it, we'll rejoice in it, and we, listen to me, we will be so glad in that moment that we were on t Team Jesus. Because listen to me, when this time comes, you don't want to be on the other team. It's going to be bad. You want to know Christ when this time comes. So I think the, the ultimate takeaway for you and for me is this. There's great mercy here. That God in his mercy uh, gathers his people together and fights against their enemies for his glory and for his fame and for his vindication. And so, the final battle. A great army, a great paradox, a great battle, a great burial ground, a great mercy. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's word. May the Lord richly bless you.